Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me as always is my co-host, Aaron. Aaron, say hi. Megavannon Melin. Megavannon to you too? <laughs> the thing is, that, I really should do. remember how to respond to this by now. We've done it so often. I just keep I, I just freeze up on the spot. You, for that you could say you could say Mega Vannon because because I'm saying Mega Vannon Melin, which would include you and the listeners. Um uh, you could say as a response on behalf of yourself and our listeners, you could say Mega Vannon Melon. Ah, well there the you difference go. between friends and friend. Yeah. See my uh, my Elvish is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try it in Kuzdul or something like that, you know. Can, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, that's dwarvish. <laughs> and you know what this dwarf says to that? Sorry, sorry. I can't say. I don't know what he says. Well, we're not <laughs> swearing in dwarvish on on here. It's. I'm, I'm sure it sounds like Cornish though. So, what have you been up to this week, wildlife wise? Um. <laughs> Actually, not much. I. Oh, I don't well, think I've, done, I think I've been quite busy this. I've been quite busy Thanks. this week, not but sure. yeah, I've not done anything wildlife-wise this week. No. Yeah. Well. Oh, uh, I did observe a hedgehog for a little while, though. I saw a hedgehog along the road, so I pulled over and just watched him for a bit. So there, there we go. And in yeah. that space of moment, I, I saw he was a big hedgehog, a huge hedgehog. Um, More than uh, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was so big that I thought if if someone painted him blue, I would genuinely believe that he'd run. Like, not not quite as fast as the Flash, but maybe maybe faster than Quicksilver. Uh, <laughs> we just crossed three fandom streams there. Um, but yeah, whilst I was watching this big uh, hedgehog boar, I um I also saw a couple of bats too. Didn't manage yeah, yeah. to. I I couldn't couldn't identify them though. Mm. I'm not very good at identifying some of our um some of our native bat species. I well, think... I mean, they are quite hard to ID without the sort of correct equipment to be able to it's hear. Just, they're just so fast. They're so yeah. fast. Uh, do I? Am I remembering right that Drew can identify them quite well? I can't remember. Possibly. Maybe, maybe I not. Think he's probably had more experience out like looking for them than than either you or I have. Yeah, but, uh, but yeah, that that's the only wildlife thing I've done this uh, this week. I okay. observed a hedgehog that I accidentally stumbled across. And by accident, whilst observing him, I observed some bats too. Fair enough. Uh, I I did um, over the weekend. I I have been helping um, my partner uh, at a festival. Um, it's like a local music festival, and in her in her gazebo because we had the tent up, there was quite a few like insects that were drawn in by the light, which was cool. Oh, it's always good, good to that. see some I of them. Enjoy that. Yeah. Mm. what about you what have you been up to oh well i not really much um i was out in the garden sorting out just normal gardeny stuff Hmm. uh but the only real sort of well it's not even really natural history i suppose it is natural sciences i finally put together the telescope that i got bought for my birthday 
Well, that it is natural history. It's it's natural yeah. sciences and it's historic because everything that you're going to view is not in the place it is. Uh, is not now in the place where you're going to see it. Was that? I'm not sure that was good English at all. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was English of a sort. But yeah, um, that's yeah, that's mostly where I've gone. It it's all together now, and now I'm just gonna, you know, get out there of an evening and and have a look around, see what I can see. Hmm. I've I've never really been a hundred percent like brilliant at astronomy, but I've always wanted to give it a go a bit, you know. Yeah, I'd like to get a telescope into it. I I know, or at least I'm a little bit rusty, so I suppose I should say I know most of the. If if I can point out a constellation, I can probably tell you the Greek myth behind it. Yeah, I'm I'm fairly good with spotting Orion and Orion the Hunter, yeah, Cassiopeia, (laughs) Pegasus. Perseus. Oh, I know the names. Just you know, trying to figure out where they are. I think easy. one of, one of my favourites is actually the story about Ursa Major and Ursa Minor. Um, yeah. Speaking mm. of uh, speaking of myths, it was the equinox this weekend, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, it is. It is the equinox today. It's today, right? It's yeah, today. It's today. That's the um. Well, it will be for for those listening on on next sunday is it's last sunday when we're recording so so yeah it was the equinox it is the equinox as we're recording this but for you listening it was the equinox i know and that that means that for the for for the hellenes that meant that persephone was going back to her husband hades in the underworld which meant that all you know plant life and and that started to die off and all the animals went into hibernation and yeah it's the it's the it's the, the start up of kind of you know the autumn and and the winding down into the dead of winter my least favorite time of the year in britain yeah we don't get proper winter we don't get a proper summer it rained the entire summer and then uh and now we're we're in for a uh, improper snowless winter we just have this miserable wind and rain and you don't see any animals uh and yeah just the only thing to look for is yeah (laughs) Yeah, but you want like snowdrifts four foot high and blooming caribou roaming across the. Is garden. it? Yeah, is it too much to ask for proper seasons? You know, like like you get a proper snowy, you know, snowy winter. Yeah, but if you and get then it where melts you are, down, you're not getting out of your village. You're stuck. Not a problem. <laughs> not a problem. Get a, a ski do. Uh, but then, then when spring comes, like the blades of grass break through the 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 foreign snow, you start to get the flowers, and you start to get the insects and and the bugs, and then the birds come back, and then the small yeah. mammals come back. Then it heats up into the summer. You get a wicked summer full of sun, and uh, and sometimes that light, that lovely light breeze that you get on the beach, you get some nice surf. It goes into autumn. The surf carries through, but then you start getting like the reds and the browns and, and, and the leaves coming down, making the forest walkways nice and beautiful. And then it all kind of starts to, you know, frost over and then you get the snow come back and just, it just would be nice to see Britain have a full cycle of, of life and, and renewal and, and, and stuff. I'm going to sound like a hippie. So I'm going to shut up. <laughs> well, should we move on from your, whimsical views on the uh, the state of nature and, and head on into the actual news. Yeah. British season cool. suck. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get a t-shirt. That should be one of our t-shirts. British season suck. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> cool. 
It's the news! Right, well, we're into this week's news. Aaron, take us out. Every week, we are inundated with news coming out of the weird and wonderful world of natural sciences. And though we are but a small team, we want you, our fellow cupboard dwellers, to be kept up to date on the good, the bad, and the extraordinary. So let's open up our natural history cupboard newsreel, where we've compiled some of the more interesting headlines, where to find them, and we'll dive on in. Mm. Gareth, you're up first. Indeed. Uh, and from IFL Science, world's oldest aquarium fish may be even older than we thought. Introducing <gasps> you to Methuselah, estimated oh. to be up to 101 years old. It wow. arrived in the USA in 1938 and is known to love belly rubs and fresh figs. <laughs> fresh figs? Fresh figs. That's interesting. Um, um, Methuselah is a uh, an, att- an attraction at an aquarium. She is a 101-year-old Queensland lungfish, which is already a very mm. ancient group of fish. In, indeed, mm. in fact, the ancestors... Uh, to modern-day tetrapods, um, ourselves, and everything that's not a fish. DNA analysis has revealed that the current oldest fish living in an aquarium could be even older than her previous estimated age of 84 years of age, putting her at 92 or plus or minus nine years, which could put her from anywhere between 83 to 101 years of age. So go with the upper limit. 101 years old. Why not? Um, That's really cool. And from fizz.org... Jewel of the Forest, new electric blue tarantula species discovered in Thailand. So discovered in 2022, the bamboo culm tarantula was found living inside bamboo stalks, a world first. In addition to this odd choice of living quarters, the impressive blue hue is also something of an oddity in that it isn't down to pigmentation, but rather the manipulation of light through nanostructures within the tarantula's hair. And a very pretty looking one as well. Yeah. From abc.net.au, Australian news channel. um, Ibises use stress and wash technique to eat poisonous cane toads. So ibises, uh, otherwise known by a lot of people in Australia as bin chickens, um, have been found grabbing hold of cane toads, which are highly poisonous, uh, and not many other things can eat them, stressing them out so that they squeeze out as much of the uh, the poison onto the skin of the toad and then washing them to basically make them less poisonous and then eat them. So showing that they are a really highly adaptive bird to figuring out how to get around uh, dining on toxic cane toads. And from Science Daily, Bida Silk is spun by silkworms for the first time, offering a green alternative to synthetic fibres. Uh, so this is the news that genetically modified silkworms were able to spin spider web that is not only a potential green alternative to synthetic fibres and therefore nylons and clothes and stuff but also six times stronger than kevlar six times nice just gonna have to yes a lot of it i'd say yeah from popular science online uh say hello to the deepest dwelling fish ever caught on camera the hello hello (laughs) the uh unknown species from the genus pseudodoloparis was twenty seven thousand three hundred and forty nine feet deep in the pacific ocean it's a member of the snailfish family. They live over uh, 20,000 feet deep um, in the Izu Ogasawa Trench in the Northern Pacific. And the fish itself is a weird looking thing that still has, well, no name yet. And um, has been studied by a team of Australian and Japanese researchers 
who didn't need a super long fishing bowl to catch the deepest fish ever recorded. Uh, it was taken with a camera with some bait in a deep sea submersible support vehicle. The team has managed to snap a photo of the unknown species of snailfish at a record-breaking 27,349 feet below the ocean surface. It is an odd-looking thing, certainly worth looking up. Wow. And this headline comes to us from the New York Times, which is a first for the podcast, I believe. Uh, And it says, It's a spider, not a doctor, captain, or Vulcan. As a nod to Gene Roddenberry, whose work has inspired countless youngsters to boldly go into the sciences, a spider genus named Roddenberry has uh, welcomed three new species. So we've got Roddenberry's Kirk, Roddenberry's McCoy, and Roddenberry's Spock. Uh, Apparently, the bodies of these resemble Star Trek ships, though I must admit that I actually don't see it. Is it is it like a an enterprise turned around so that the disc part is a is effectively the the abdomen of the the spider? I guess so. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I love it. Um, and finally, for me, uh, scientists design a colorful new paint that could cut your electricity bill. And this is from Science Alert. So scientists at Stanford University have designed a new paint that could help reduce our growing reliance on air conditioners and heaters. Basically, the paint is a reflectant, so it allows a lot of the uh, excess energy that would otherwise be absorbed by dark tiles or dark roofs to be bounced back out into space, keeping the planet cooler, meaning that the house stays cooler. But it also seems to insulate so that uh, during the winter, it will keep the house nice and warm. Nice. Um, and my last article comes to us from fizz.org online again. And this news regards a study uh, that reveals the most important considerations for grizzly bear conservation. So uh, it seems like humans are burning the grizzly bear candle from both ends, as it turns out, as new studies show how our activities are affecting their population, both via top-down pressures like illegal killings or bear-human conflict, uh, and also bottom-up influences such as food source decreases. And that wraps up for uh, this week's Newsreel instalment. Remember, if you guys at home have news articles and topics of interest to you and you think that we should cover them, then send them on in. You can use any of the usual ways to contact us and you might see your chosen topic or news article covered here or in our main topic of discussion. And with that said, Gareth, what is this week's main topic? Well, we've gone on about spider silk and a new species of spider being found. Where did you say it was? Um... Thailand. Thailand? Uh, well, It's been this, very spider heavy. I'm about to make it even heavier because from IFL Science Online, an mm. astonishing 15 million year old fossil spider, the second largest ever found. And uh, this is a spider that was five times bigger than its living relatives. This is basically a species of spider uh, that's an exquisitely preserved fossil. Uh, And a spider bonanza has kicked off in Australia, uh, which during the Miocene, which is the period just after the Eocene, when Australia started to undergo some serious climate change and the drying up of the landscape. This gave a group of spiders, the myglomorphs, which is the second group, or there are two groups of spiders. There's the myglomorphs and the raniomorphs. All tarantulas are myglomorphs, but there's also things like trapdoor spiders, and one or two other, in fact, the only myglomorph that we have here in the UK is the purse web spider, tiny little thing. Does look a bit like a tarantula, but is, is quite different. And then the raniomorphs, which is the other group of spiders. The way you tell them apart is 
Myglomorphs have fangs that come down and sort of stab into their prey, whereas raniomorphs have fangs that are more like pincers. They sort of come in from the side on their prey. Oh, interesting. Uh, but this one was a was definitely a myglomorph, which are the more ancient group of spiders anyway. It gave these spiders a real chance to diversify at this point in Australia's history. Regrettably, though, the record, uh, the fossil record of spiders is regrettably sparse, and scientists have recently discovered a world-first fossil that comes uh, from a new genus of arachnid. So it's the first of its kind ever discovered. It's massive, and it dates back to the Middle Miocene period, a period which itself spans from 23 to 5 million years ago. So quite a large period of time. But this species mm. of spider would have been in the same sort of group of trapdoor spiders are, uh, are in, and it was around between 11 and 16 million years ago. So sort of smack bang in the middle of that Miocene period. As the second largest spider fossil ever, it's it's around five times bigger than a similar spider that still walk the earth today. That's not saying much because the actual spider itself, get ready for the whopping size of this. It's comparable to a modern day wolf spider uh, at around 50 millimeters or two inches from toe to toe. Hmm. Not exactly massive. Um, no, it's not nothing that's going to break a it's, bench. It's, it's basically big <laughs> for this group of spiders. So it's been named Megamodontium McCluskeyi, uh, and its genus name is a reference to the nearest living relative, a group of tiny litter-dwelling brushfoot trapdoor spiders from the genus Mododontium. Uh, and the latter name is after Dr. Simon McCluskey, who discovered the fossil in June 2020, and so got to live the dream of having a species named after him, a dream of which I would love to be uh come real one day that would that would be i'd be quite happy with that <laughs> so, the astonishing fossil uh would have hunted by ambushing prey uh that made the big mistake of walking within reach of its camouflaged burrow just like modern day um trapdoor spiders it would have made a small silken tunnel made a little trapdoor at the top that sort of hinged with silk and then laid yep. down trip wires around it waiting for something like a cockroach or a cricket to walk past jump out grab it go straight back into the burrow if you've ever seen one of these feeding, it's lightning fast. It's actually, it's really fun to watch them feed. Not only uh, is this the largest fossilized uh, spider to be found in Australia, but it's the first fossil uh, of the family Brachycephalidae that has been found worldwide. So it's, it is a completely new uh, species, uh, said Queensland Museum arachnologist, Dr. Robert Raven, in a statement who was super, uh, the supervising uh, author on the study. So... There are around 300 species of brush-footed trapdoor spiders alive today, but they don't seem to have become uh, fossils very often. This could be because they spend so much time inside a burrow and so aren't in the right environment to be fossilized. Um, basically, this discovery will now enable scientists to fill in some gaps in the knowledge of the evolution of spiders. A very sparse amount of spiders have been found fossilized-wise. And they've already learned a few things by taking uh, taking a close peek at its finer details, which are remarkably uh, well preserved in this uh, fossil. Uh, have you seen a picture of uh, of what this one looks like, Aaron? No. Do you know what? I can actually find find this article um, ah. for some reason. Well, it's... not until sorry, not I I couldn't find this article until quite late before recording. It's a very pretty looking uh, thing. And it's, it's, it's partially my fault for leaving it so late. No, no, no. It's 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 one of these ones that does show a really nice clear outline of things. And I imagine under certain different lights and microscopes, 
they'll be able to come up with a bit more uh, information than we can just see with the naked eye. But it's a really cool yeah. find to come across. I mean, spiders as a group have undergone so much of a change just within the last uh, 10, 20 years. Probably the most famous one that most people are still under the illusion that it is, in fact, a spider is a group uh, that was called Mesothelae, which, if you remember, Walking with Beasts, not Walking with Beasts, Walking with Monsters, which was the uh, the third iteration of the Walking with Dinosaurs um, uh, series of programs, they had what was down as Mesothelae, which was the giant spider the size of a cat. And in the episode, you see it coming after early reptiles in the um, Carboniferous period. Yes, I remember yeah. that, yeah. Well, it isn't a spider at all. <laughs> it's a type of sea scorpion, the Eurypterid. Um, but that that sort of information changed relatively quickly to the point where by the time that information about that spider, in inverted commas, came out, uh, they'd already started the production of that program. So it was already out of date before the program had even come out. So it shows how quickly these things can change and how well, not including them, can uh, also not help. And I'd like to call out the Liverpool Museum at this point. I've I've loved going to the Liverpool Museum loads and loads of times, but they have a mesothelae in their fossil gallery, which is still labelled as a giant spider. Now, I could understand if this was something that just happened last year or something, but this news has been out for almost 10, 15 years now. Why haven't hmm. they changed the labelling on, on that? That's that's kind of kind of bad. They've also still got very outdated dinosaur statues in one bit that have got Tracheodon written on them. Tracheodon was an outdated, na outdated name by like the 1960s for what we now call Edmontosaurus. It went through the name change of Tracheodon and then Anatotitan and then hmm. finally Edmontosaurus. Um, but yeah, Tracheodon was out of date in the 60s. So... <laughs> why on earth is a museum doing that you know it just takes two minutes to change some of the names on these things because otherwise it, it leaves people like me getting infuriated and people who don't really know learning incorrect facts but i yeah, don't yes yeah. a very cool spider fossil and hopefully more will uh will come out of the ground in that part of queensland so yeah yeah very cool mm. that does sound very cool Shall we move on swiftly into our creature feature for this week? Yeah, yeah, we should. It's the creature feature. Okay, well, we are now into this week's creature feature. Aaron, what have we got? Well, picture this, Professor. It's a misty Sunday evening in the Scottish Highlands, and Ooh. you're sat by the shoreline of a vast loch. You... Yeah, <laughs> you've bypassed the obligatory uh, Earn Brew and gone straight to the Scotch whiskies. Oh, Iron Brew and Scotch whiskey. Oh, <laughs> Next, like, you'll be saying I'm having a deep fried Mars bar. <laughs> well, you are pounding back uh, pretty rapidly with every tatty scone and, uh, and a mouthful of haggis that you consume. Haggis <laughs> um, is nice. So don't, don't, don't I, be... I've tried haggis and I like haggis. I do like haggis. Um, and I like tatty scones. They are they're really nice. Used to have them every day on the uh, you know, like first break when I was at Edinburgh Zoo. 
they do really t- if anyone visits visits uh tatty scones apart from the the amazing animals and keeping stuff there check out the tatty scones <laughs> very good <laughs> anyway that's you're 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 enjoying yourself at the shoreline of a uh, scottish lock and um and yeah just pretty chilled out but away just off the water you spot a dark form emerging only for it to then sink again gracefully down uh, below the surface once more you gasp there yeah. it is again uh <laughs> tugging the arm of the person next to you you excitedly explain in hushed tones of awe what you've just witnessed Luckily for the professor, (laughs) luckily for the professor, the person next to him is not an orderly from Bell Reeve or Arkham Asylum. And uh, respect points if you know where those references originate. No, indeed, this person is the ever trustworthy, ever reliable, ever respectable Sir Aaron, um, (laughs) co-host of the Natural History Cupboard podcast. And today, as with all days, I have my wits about me. Unlike Gareth, whose inebriation has caused his speech to slide into the type of drunken slur I'm more accustomed to hearing from the clientele of a Barnstable kebab shop on a Saturday night. Uh, <laughs> it's all that whiskey and iron brew I've been pounding <laughs> down together. I call it a rusty girder. A rusty girder. <laughs> there you go. There's there's the official cocktail of the podcast, a rusty girder. Whiskey yep. and iron brew. So... <laughs> As Gareth's explaining what he's just seen, I'm watching the water to to spot Gareth's mystery, uh, en- enigmatic presence. And as he points again at the dark form that he's seen rise out of the water, I tell him quite certainly that what he's seen is a bow wave, um, or a bow wave, as it should be pronounced. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's the that's the end of the excitement of uh, cryptozoology. Wow. I'm afraid, but luckily for us all. I have spent this week a tinkering in the cupboard. Uh, I have made modifications. I've made refinements. And I am ready to announce that the time displacement unit I outfitted for the cupboard with uh, about three years ago now is uh, finally submersible. So down your whiskey. (laughs) Down your whiskey, Gareth. Uh, We're going Jurassic. Um, Now, whilst it's a huge temporal leap uh, back in time to an epoch roughly 199.6 to 175.6 uh, million years ago, it's not such a huge spatial one. Uh, it's just a small hop over to the opposite coastline from where we're sat right now, um, as as we'll probably see later, I suppose. Um I will just say, I feel I'm getting a bit too reckless with the time displacement unit now because I've, <laughs> I've, I've taken the team and our listeners to the same place and time twice in past episodes, which almost caused trouble. And now I'm taking a drunken Gareth with me. Um, <laughs> but here we are. We've landed our cupboard in the tropical sea that exists at this time and place. The habitat is somewhat shallow and a lot clearer than you'd expect to find today. Uh, the sand is a mixed sediment of coral and shell matter. And the creatures are actually a little bit familiar to the average fossil hunter. Uh, what you'll be looking at is, in life, uh, ammonites, ichthyosaurs, and even, uh, I, I sometimes struggle to pronounce this one, nerinioids um, being present, among others. Now, nerinioids, just so you know what I'm talking about, is is like an ancient sea snail, basically. Um now, in such pristine conditions, it takes us mere minutes to find what we're after. Looming up from the depths to draw breath 
a small population of Plesiosaurus delicadirus have emerged. And I was just saying to Gareth before recording how much I like saying that name. Plesiosaurus. It is a very, is a very good one. It just rolls off the tongue. Plesiosaurus delicadirus. Um, yeah, so we've spotted them. And they're, they're present in, in numbers, uh, as it may seem. Now, as they enter the shallower waters, we get our best observations of them. Now, while they are uh, representing a range of sizes and ages, uh, some of the bigger specimens are pushing about 3.5 meter lengths with an estimated weight of 185 kilograms. So they're fairly large, not the biggest plesiosaurs, not the smallest, just a, a respectable size. Yet, despite their odd appearance with the uh, the size and the long neck and the flippers, quite alien to the kind of animal that you see today, I suppose, uh, they do cut through the water as gracefully as today's cetacean giants, powering themselves with their great limbs acting like four wings, flapping in alternating pairs. First, the front pair, using the kind of figure eight motion employed by birds and turtles, uh, and then the rear pair. Now, as I say, the neck is long. It's supported by 40 vertebrae. Um, bear in mind that, that we only have seven, uh, but also giraffes have seven too. So, you know, size counts in this case, I suppose. But yeah, 40 vertebrae in the neck. Uh, and on the top of this neck perches its short, narrow head with great circular eyes positioned about halfway along that length. Uh, and the nostrils are actually not too far forward of where the eyes are found, so quite quite close together. The mouth is armed with somewhat cone-shaped needle teeth, roughly around 40 to 50 of them in, in total, and they're all slightly curved and marked with thin striations. The body is broad, smooth-skinned, and robust. Uh, it looks a little bit, I suppose, like, like a turtle body, if you imagine that turtles didn't have a shell. It's kind of that kind of broad, flat, chunky thing. And it ends with a relatively short and narrow but strong tail that is likely used to a very limited degree, a bit like that of a whale or a dolphin's. With all this in mind, it's clear to see why it was compared to a snake hiding in a turtle's body uh, and why they chose to name it Plesiosaurus delicadirus, because it's a name that borrows from the Greek word plesios, uh, which means uh, near to, and the Latin word saurus for obviously lizard. And then there's delicadirus, meaning long-necked. If you combine these words together, what the name means in, 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 in reality is long-neck, who is closest in the chain of being to reptiles. If you don't know what the chain of being is, it's a very old, archaic and outdated way of looking at life through the lens of, uh, of the Bible and Victorian times. It was a way that they tried to to kind of ca categorize things as lower and higher life forms and stuff like that. So this name is partly a nod to its appearance, obviously, uh, and partly it's actually a comparison to ichthyosaurs, which is another marine reptile that was found in a similar area, uh, but one whose uh, body form kind of closer resembles the body plan of a fish. Uh, so that was how it was just a way of differentiating them by name. Now, following the numerous Nessies through their habitat, we watch as they go about their daily grocery spree. Bellamites are one such uh, item on the menu, and they're being snapped up around the rocky breaks. Now, humans will eventually find our friend's fossilized remains with cephalopods that, uh, like, um, like Bellamites uh, in the stomach content. 
clams are also being collected and mollusks too we see being consumed but it's the fish that are particularly interesting to watch these ball-shaped schools of fish move in through the water like a starlin murmuration um if you've ever seen the murmuration of starlin you'll know what i mean that kind of like that uh how would you describe it gareth the way it kind of ebbs and flows and throbs yeah, as, as move, it moves through fluid, the air fluid fluid movement in unison yeah yeah um now the reason why it's so interesting is because the hydrodynamic form of the plesiosaur as a predator allows it to reach speeds of between 1.8 to 5.4 kilometers per hour we think uh and the head of the plesiosaur obviously at the end of a long neck it actually greets this ball of fish before they can even sense the body's presence so the teeth are upon them very quickly and they, it acts like a trap cage in the fish as the animal begins to chew now as the plesiosaurus group disbands one is left behind exhausted from the effort and with little cal caloric intake to show for it though still strong she is she's not that strong uh, and soon the, the old girl must rest forever sleep on the soft seabed in time, her body will be covered by sediments, compressed and mineralized. Having seen her in life through the technology of our cupboard time displacement unit, I would actually like to believe that uh, the world will witness her again. Perhaps it is she whose complete skeleton will be the first of her kind to be recovered by one Mary Angen, a uh, legendary fossil hunter and a hero of the natural history cupboard who we've spoken about at length before. But I guess this is something that we'll we'll never know for sure. Uh, we're certainly not going to hang around to find out. Uh, what we do know is that paleontologist Mary Annin uncovered her epic find in December of 1823. So 200 years ago this year. She found the beast in early Jurassic rocks in the Dorset region of the Lower Lays group, which is essentially a unit of shale, clay and marine limestone. Now, I said uh, that she was the first of her kind. The complete specimen found by Annin wasn't actually technically the first example of the species. In fact, it had already been named through the description of partial remains discovered by Henry de la Beche and William Coneybeer. Uh, but due to the superb completeness of Annin's specimen, hers was quite rightly considered the holotype. Uh, to this day, Plesiosaurus delicodirus remains the only species of this genus, but it wasn't always the case. Originally, this taxon was an example of what is called a wastebasket taxon. Uh, a group love in... those wastebaskets. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, and there's plenty of them. In fact, I believe carnotaurs were, were, part, were, were once one before they had a bit more information on them. Um, and I... Correct me if I'm wrong, but Xenophrons were were for a Xenophra, while. Yeah, as I well think, as I think they're a, the I think Xenophrons are a bit more refined now as well. But I'm not definitely, insectivores, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Anyway, a wastebasket taxon, as you might have guessed from what we just said, is a grouping made to basically lump everything that was similar enough during a time of very limited study, but we didn't really know what to do with. So, oh, well, that one, in it's the case of insects... so... Yeah. yeah. In the case of insectivores, for example, it was like, it eats insects, chuck it in, but these things could be wildly different um, other than the fact that they eat insects. Uh, fortunately, further study has not only refined what qualifies as a plesiosaurus, but it's also trimmed the fat to such a degree that tax are once found here 
have been expelled, finding their taxonomic homes elsewhere in the larger Plesiosauria order. As I said, Plesiosaurus is uh, is now a genus of one. So I do have a couple closing questions for you, Gareth, if you've gotten over your inebriation now. Um, I mean, you know, I feel I should have got a lot more actually drunk for this <laughs> feature, you know. You'd have it in, but yeah. <laughs> to be fair, we we have reason to be this week because we're recording this as uh, as Gareth fills me in. He's watching the uh, he's watching the Rugby World Cup and Aust- uh, Australia are being beaten by by our home country Wales. Yeah, it's currently not not that I'm watching this in the background whilst we're doing this, but it's currently thirty two six. Oh look, thirty two six. Get on. Yeah. Although, <laughs> uh, yeah, like I said, up them dragons. Anyway. <laughs> uh, actually, just a note of interest, a, a common thing here. You're the same as me in that you're well you're Welsh by you've adopted the Welsh uh nationality through familial ties, haven't you? Because you were born yeah, in Scotland. I, I'm Scottish, but yeah, I'll support Wales over Australia any day. Whereas I'm I was born in I was born in Devon, but because dad was born in Wales. He always said that I was Welsh and I've just adopted it as as that. Plus, it makes it easier when you're introducing yourself to people around the world to say well <laughs> that you're Welsh, because as soon as you say you're English, they just uh they they kind of feel that you might be a football hooligan. So hooligan <laughs> hooliganism exists in all nationalities, but Britain are particularly well known for not being able to hold their drink and their and their drunken aggression. But that's an aside. So I've got a couple of closing questions for you, Gareth. Uh, <laughs> Back to the creature feature. <laughs> Back not to the, the rugby, creature yeah. feature. Uh, so do you think uh, plesiosaurs, such as plesiosaurus, were deep sea divers? What What do you reckon? I think one or two species certainly were, yeah. Um, probably not as deep diving as things like ophthalmosaurus, the, mm-hmm. uh, the ichthyosaurs. Yep. But the, I think there's certainly evidence to suggest that some of them would have been deep sea divers. Oh, interesting. Could you expand on evidence? Because I found something really interesting out about uh, this animal that I didn't know before. Um, I thought I thought there was something to do with their eyes. Okay, uh, if I okay. Correctly, I I could be totally wrong and completely and utterly off with it. But um... I'm actually kind of glad that you did say eyes because uh, because I mean you're quite right. The eyes are are very big and they're very round, basic, and they're positioned as well in a specific way and it's all all those features are to basically uh you know like like absorb as much light and see as much around you as possible but there's something even more interesting than eyesight especially for me as someone who is a qualified diver um and that is that they found evidence of plesiosaurs who got the bends oh they found uh, damage to the bones but the bends everybody is decompression decompression sickness so when you go diving you have to you have to plan and time your your ascent back to the surface very carefully if you don't do that you get decompression sickness you can have nitrogen bubbles form uh, and you can cause damage to to your bones and that's what they found in plesiosaurs uh it, which is really really cool um so they went they they would have gone diving quite deep to be able to 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 get that um and sometimes it didn't work out because they ended up with uh decompression sickness so i mm. thought that was a really cool little fact um it makes you think it makes you wonder how many modern day marine animals get the bends you know it does yeah yeah yes it does 
uh, and if there's anything evolutionary that that protects them from from it yeah. as well um second question uh you might not have noticed but i described the plesiosaurus population as acting kind of independently of one another and yet kind of communally too in that short story mm-hmm. um do you know anything about their their social uh, structure uh not a clue i'm afraid the only thing i'm going gonna go on is i would imagine that you'd probably have a bit of maternal care, but probably not because I suppose, well, no, they, they did give birth to live young. Um, mm-hmm. We know that much. So I would assume there's probably some maternal care there, but probably not much else after that, I'm guessing. Or maybe loose congregations coming together because of feed. But no, I'm I'm not very knowledgeable on that one, I'm afraid. Very good. You've actually hit the nail on the head there pretty much. There, there isn't much evidence of social hierarchies or social groupings or social behaviors as such. Uh, and in addition to that, sight and smell are more important than hearing. So with uh, with cetaceans, you're going to get hearing is quite important because they vocalize to each other. Uh, they don't just vocalize as well. One of the reasons for whales, um, sorry, for uh, well, yeah. But the main thing that I'm thinking of is is dolphins. One of the reasons why when they porpoise sometimes and they're leaping out the water, they do these spins or flips and slap in the water is the acoustic is like acoustic communication. Um, oftentimes when they're in the search of food. Um so hearing's not that important to plesiosaurs, whereas sight and smell are. So they're definitely uh kind of tweaked and driven towards you know the hunting aspect but not so much towards the social aspect however they are live bearing and there is uh i won't go into to it too much plus there's not there's not a lot to read up on um but there is a lot of evidence for parental care which is actually rivaling cetaceans so uh it's likely that they gave birth to these young and they kept them with them up until maturity uh, so yeah. Now before I do end this creature feature, I did want to just quickly go over uh, Nessie a little bit because that's <laughs> the most famous plesiosaur or potential plesiosaur. So I'm afraid I'm going to ruin everybody's fun here. Of course, just like uh, with big cats. Well, hang on, hang on, wait a minute. Wait. Okay. A minute. Okay. I, I was born in Inverness. You can't tell me what's in that lock. <laughs> now what? I can tell you for a fact. The only thing I've ever seen in Loch Ness was an old washing machine. <laughs> Go on, well, you, can, you can ruin everyone's... Uh... <laughs> washing machine rumbling actually might be a little bit related, but we'll get on to that in a second. Um, so firstly, the one thing I do want to say is there is not a dinosaur in Loch Ness. Uh, because even if Nessie is there, Nessie, as a plesiosaur, is not a dinosaur. And that's one thing that winds me up about this conversation. And it shouldn't wind me up. I should be like, ah, cool. it's not a dinosaur, but I, I know you're being colloquial about it. But, but it really gets me. Like, um, Which, actually, now that I say that out loud, I realize I really shouldn't tease you, Gareth, for every time you get upset <laughs> about someone calling the pterosaur <laughs> a dinosaur. Because it's essentially the same kind of argument. But yeah, teros- uh, sorry, plesiosaurus. Uh, and the wider plesiosaurs, they're not dinosaurs. Um, secondly, there have actually been recorded carcasses of plesiosaurs found. They're not plesiosaurs. <laughs> These <laughs> rotten carcasses that have been found and reported as uh, as plesiosaurus and potentially Nessie, they have in fact been basking sharks. And obviously, that's not in Loch Ness. That's that's beached yeah, well, that's a basking very lost... sharks. Okay, yeah, that would be a very lost uh, basking shark. Uh, 
almost as lost as a uh, as a plesiosaur, although I suppose not in a temporal sense. <laughs> um, thirdly, and I want to kind of get more into the actual myth of Loch Ness uh, monster specifically now, but the reports of the Loch Ness uh, monster they often have such wildly different descriptions. You can have your uh, your plesiosaur uh, descriptions, but you can also have this massive eel. Uh, there's 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 plenty of different. There are a few um, common uh, threads through the myth, but some of the some of the descriptions vary so wi- wildly that you could pretty much just write the idea of the monster itself off. Um, although I will admit that probably because of the internet uh, and shareable information being much more easily and widely accessed, that phenomena of different descriptions has kind of petered out and now everybody's on board with the plesiosaur look. Uh, mm-hmm. But that, I think, is actually more to do with the rise of, of media in all of its forms. Well, um, you tend to find that ideas of what these creatures look like uh, mm. even if they are based on uh, prehistoric animals, is very much the original view of them will be based exactly what the original sort of pop culture view of an animal will be. So things like Nessie, you know, it's always the classic snake neck. The swan the neck, yeah. They physically couldn't do. They didn't have the strength exactly. of their neck to be able to lift it out. That... Things like Malike on Bembe in, in Africa, it's always this... Yep very grey brontosaurus swamp living because that was the image of the animal in uh, at the time yeah not anything like what a what an actual sauropod would look like so uh, that's a very victorian uh, per- perception of uh, sauropods is that they had to yeah. be in swamps or in bodies of water to be able to hold that much weight yeah which um which gives you an instant well th- there's an issue here because if if the animal looks like that it's not clearly a plesiosaur and it's not clearly a, a sauropod. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a person's depiction of what they think a sauropod looks like. Well, so. I'm going to circle back to some of the other kind of debunking facts. Cause you have actually just said one of them. I was going to say that, and it's probably the most important one of all actually is that the animal couldn't arch its neck in the way that we see in these dodgy photos that people have, uh, taken like or, or made yeah this swan curve that you talk about that neck was as stiff as a surfboard uh it was inflexible and never raised sharply above the head um however a few other honorable mentions to debunk this myth you've uh for example um there is still somewhat of a debate raging over plesiosaur metabolism were they cold-blooded or, or warm-blooded but if we were to that's just for the sake of argument let's assume that it was cold-blooded then that's one way we could rule out a uh plesiosaur being there because Loch Ness is far too cold for for that kind of uh animal to have a viable population surviving there for that many years um and finally of course the the lock is just way too small and prey numbers are way too few to support a breeding colony of plesiosaurs a little bit like big cats in Britain surviving 50 years here uh it's just not there's not enough. They've just shown a bunch, like bunches of Australian fans getting up and leaving the stadium. <laughs> it's basically all over, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I think I they hear scored, Dingo by, eating your rugby. By the way, they just, uh, Wales scored a drop goal as well within the last couple of minutes. It's now 35 <laughs> 6. 
I don't follow rugby, but I, I, I uh, I'm always happy when Wales beat someone because it's not like we get into the football. <laughs> it's, it's so much. Yeah, this is brilliant. Well, that's that's what you get when you pit kangaroos against dragons, Gareth. <laughs> um, just to close out this like properly, and this is the last bit I'll talk about. There is a really interesting theory that I only caught literally as I was ending my my kind of the time that I allot myself to do to do this because otherwise I would spend the entire week doing this and nothing else would get done because uh, it, it there's quite a lot of research goes into this as we've probably suggested before, but. For those of you that don't know, Scotland is actually, it, it, formally, it was quite volcanic. Um, lots of extinct volcanoes in Scotland. In fact, Edinburgh sits in the middle of one. Um, well, Edinburgh Castle sits on top of it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Arthur's Seat is one side of it. Yeah. Um, but there is one theory, uh, and it's actually down to a study. And I, I've forgotten the guy's name now, which is a bit of a, a bummer. But... Uh, someone actually did a study on on what could be going on in Loch Ness. And what they found is that the one of those other common threads, one one of these common threads that kind of go through all the the um the reports of, of the Loch Ness monster is that that people fit and this goes back to the very first sighting, which was by uh Saint Columba, I think it was. Oh uh, yeah, the 12th Exactly. Yeah. Mo- al- almost all of them have reported feeling the ground shake and hearing a rumbling noise. And mm. um, what they think, uh, what they, what this study um, has kind of revealed is that perhaps it's it's uh, minor earth tremors. And when these tremors happen, there's movement on the water from bubbles come into the surface because of the because of this going on under the under the under the rock underneath the water so that actually might be the explanation for the Loch Ness monster that there's a little bit of an earthquake kind of uh, zone there um uh causing some of these sightings um hearing a, a low growl uh feeling the 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 ground beneath you shake and seeing disturbance on the water it might all be related to um, seismic activity so mm-hmm. i would have to look into that further to know more about it uh like i said you have to have a cut off these things because otherwise it, you you'd struggle to know what to tell people but very interesting i would i would recommend people looking into that but yeah that um in a water droplet is a uh is a pleasant source of lycodirus mm. do you know what one of the the biggest things that i've uh enjoyed Certainly, when it comes to all marine reptiles, uh, that's that seems to have happened within the last, well, I suppose, ten or so years, is the um, the fattening up of them. Mm, yeah. Um, because when when you and I were were little, and the sort of dinosaur books that we'd have had, where you'd have had undoubtedly, you know, pictures of marine reptiles in there. Plesiosaurs were always shown as having the thinnest of necks and that sort of swan arched neck out of the yeah, water. That's right. Usually sort of staring at something like a I don't know, an ichthyosaur or something. Mm. Uh, although ichthyosaurs, I'd say, are probably the only one out of all of them that seem to have been nice and plump from the very beginning because yeah. 
they had that dolphin-like shape, so they almost instantly gave them that. Yeah, when you see a shark or a dolphin, it's quite plump, so they've taken yeah. that from... But with other marine reptiles, they've taken the look of, like, iguanas and Lizards stuff like that. And, yeah. But we've now seen with mosasaurs, with, um, with pliosaurs and plesiosaurs, all of them being plumped up to being what they should be, which is, well, hydrodynamic bodies, basically. You know, they're showing the real curves of... Uh, <laughs> of marine reptiles we want to see marine reptiles with curves none of this uh fat shaming of of reptiles <laughs> but yeah the uh, and i think the best view of of any uh plesiosaur so far which even still falls afoul of the relatively new um sort of studies to show that they couldn't have taken that you know lifted their necks out of the water too much hmm. is prehistoric planet because the um, New Zealand species that they look at of plesiosaur in that lifts its neck out of the water almost in a straight up manner, which I suppose is oh, entirely yeah. possible to an a extent, bit like but... spy hopping. To be fair, yeah. if your if your neck is that rigid, you could probably it, go up. Yeah. It could it could be a way of you know you you just have to swim vertically up, break the water with your with your head, and then just drop back yeah. down. Uh, yeah, spy hopping is, uh, could be another thing, but I don't see a reason why a plesiosaur would spy hop. When orca spy hop, it's because they're tracking something that's on the ground uh, exactly. as opposed to in the sea. But yeah, that it makes sense for breathe for breathing, taking yeah. short breaths. Whereas if they cut, because if they if they were to breathe like a whale does, they don't have that same flexibility in their neck that whales have in their body. So whales yeah. can literally come to the surface flat and go down like a sharp dive. These guys would have to plane upwards Probably gradually, take yeah. a breathe, a breather, and then kind of slowly go, uh, go down again. So it makes sense from a breathing point of view. Mm, definitely. Yeah, that was really good. I think uh, it's been a while since we've had a marine reptile uh, on the uh, the podcast. So uh, um, I think it has. Think Ichthyosaurus was was the last one. Is that not the only marine? No, we did mosasaur. I did mosasaur. I should remember yeah, that. Yeah. Well, that that's also three three animals that can be found relatively close to us too, actually. Indeed. Apart, well, well not, that's nice. not mosasaurs, but yeah. I thought there was mosasaur uh, teeth around here somewhere. Um. No, uh, I think there's there has been some found, but the the sort of amount of mosasaur fossils just don't seem to turn up in, in the UK. Cause I don't think we have the right, uh, the, the right sort of rock formations for, for them. Ah. Well, they have turned up like a couple of times. That's good enough. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm clearly, I'm, I'm, I'm over it, over putting too much value in, in just a few of them. And okay. Well, well, yeah, we it was enjoyable up? to go through Plesiosaur. I like Plesiosaur. Uh, and it is good the to time use machine the... and and pour a rusty girder into it to get us back to the uh, the present for um for our mailbag. Let's do it. <laughs> Bing, you've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right. Well, we're into our emails for this week, and we're going to start things off with the question that we posed to you uh, last week, which was: If you could, what species of animal would you uh, want to spend your life conserving? Um, I think we got some good answers with this one. Yeah, I think I like the first one. It's uh, something, it, it, it's a very, it's it's the perfect Scottish answer. Lindsay Kinsella has put, 
the majestic wild haggis, of course. <laughs> now, interesting fact for you about the wild haggis, its legs are shorter on one side, and that's because it lives on the side of mountains. And the way you catch a wild <laughs> haggis is you chase it uh, in the opposite direction that its legs go. So you go around the other side of the mountain. Right, right, right. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> makes sense. Just to point out, haggises aren't real creatures. Haggis is, is, is basically a sausage made out of a sheep's stomach. But if you go to Scotland, they're very much seen as a as a whole endangered creature, you know. But um, I love you've made that you've made that answer better just by your description of what haggis is. There are going to be people in the world. We'll, we'll probably come on to this later, but we've just been talking about like how many like how many countries have listeners for us. You've just explained haggis in such a bad way, such a vague way, <laughs> that there are now people thinking, "Are they real?" You, you eat the stomach. You, you eat a sausage made of of sheep stomach. Like so I know I'm there sorry, are other sausages made out of pig intestine. It's not yes, but food. but it's um, it's it's just like it's like I feel that there's a level of ignorance with uh with uh sausage that you've just disallowed anybody to have with haggis. There, it was I just mean, it's nice. It wasn't it's vague. Not... It was blunt. Haggis is nice. I've eaten haggis. Yeah. It's very nice. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, back on the subject. Indeed. Um, so Jen Babs has put, I think bees and pollinators. I know that many thousands of species, but I can't help uh, but think we all rely on these. I'll, I'll let you off there. That that is a decent and noble cause to go with uh, pollinators. Mm. Um, my other half has put tardigrades. They're cute. They're uh, verging on indestructible, and they're a pioneering species. Look after the base, and the rest will follow. I did mention to her, though, that they are pretty much everywhere. They're not something that necessarily needs conserving because they are all, are almost completely indestructible. So they're one of those animals that will probably outlive everything else um, in some sort of global disaster terms. But I'd, I'd like to so, think of a tardigrade reserve. It's just basically yeah. a large patch of moss, you know. Well, so long as like, you know, so long as like that yellow jacket... Uh... Yeah, yellow jacket technology doesn't get out to you know some weird poachers <laughs> with a with a microscopic fetish. <laughs> what poaching tardigrades and there's going to be people that don't get that reference. Yellow yellow jacket is the villain from Ant Man. Yeah. <laughs> um, Becky Walker has put Amur leopards, obviously, or Iberian lynx. I think you'd probably agree with that one, there, Aaron. Yeah, both good calls. Yeah, uh, I could have I could have predicted that she would have said Amur uh, Amur leopard though. To be fair. Well, she was, your, she was your protege, your your Padawan. So. My apprentice. <laughs> um, Hannah Barlow has put, I'd focus on conserving habitats so that all species are protected. Just saying. Fair enough. You know, that seems like a, um, like the the sort of, I'm trying to think of the, the best way, the, like almost the politically correct or, you know, pol not politician answer, but the can't offend anyone by picking one species answer there. <laughs> to to be to like be it. fair, then she she probably will like my answer then that I gave last week. I think. Yes, oh, which I very in, similar, in yeah. the non the most non biased way possible is the best answer. <laughs> Richard Jordan has put axolotl. That's definitely a good one. They are in heavy need of uh, um, protection in their natural habitat. Mm -hmm. And Matt Jack Dupe uh, has said, I think. Threatened amphibian species like the golden mantella uh, under such threat, of, uh, but not a lot of people care about them. I care about golden mantella. I think they're gorgeous. We care. Things. We care. Yeah, but uh, some really good answers there. 
And we have to we have to maxolotl the axolotl. Oh yeah, to the to the maxolotl, the uh, wax, <laughs> waxolotl, um, and then the relaxolotl as well. <laughs> I love that whole list of axolotl uh, prefixes that you can have. So don't don't tax a lot all the axolotl. <laughs> so based based on the fact right, that uh, for this week's question that not only have we mentioned Nessie but we've also mentioned dragons uh, in mm. the form of Welsh dragons. Did we mention any other uh, any other um, you know uh, cryptid? I don't think we did, have we? Um, uh, well, we did kind of because I said big cats in the UK as well. Oh, yeah. Um, but I mean, with with sea monsters, you like yeah. like the plesiosaur. You could go along the lines of Cetus and Scylla, and yeah. So this week's question, based on the fact that we've talked about Nessie, uh, we've also talked about Welsh dragons, um, is what cryptid is famous in your part of the world? Now we got on to uh, to this because myself and Aaron were looking at the full list of countries uh, that we have listeners in, and in fact, I will go through said list. Uh, so that you can you can hear because this will encompass quite a few different cryptids from all around the world. So, in in order of of listenership, we will start, and I will try and do this with as little breath as possible. Um, so, we have listeners in the following: the UK, the US, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Germany, Singapore, Poland, Sweden, Ireland, Italy, Spain, Switzerland, Hungary, Netherlands, Kenya, Denmark, France, India, Norway, Belgium, Jersey, Japan, Ecuador, Austria, Philippines, Finland, Israel, Slovenia, Guernsey, Mexico, South Africa, Iran, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Iceland, Luxembourg, Russia, China, South Korea, Croatia, Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, Portugal, Benin, Vietnam, Latvia, Turkey, Bulgaria, French Polynesia, Cyprus, Czech Republic, United Arab Emirates, Romania, Peru, Taiwan, Republic of Lithuania, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Gibraltar, Costa Rica, Ethiopia, Puerto Rico, Hong Kong, Belize, Nigeria, Estonia, Trinidad and Tobago, Tanzania, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Ukraine, Serbia, Mongolia, Greece, Fiji, Algeria and Dominican Republic. Oh, I'm lucky that you ended there because I was literally about to start beatboxing. <laughs> <laughs> so... We have listeners in all of those different parts of the world, so we could be fairly certain that um, there's at least one or two cryptids uh, that we've probably not even heard of and have not been mentioned in our cryptid special that we did all the way back in season one. Um, yeah, yeah. That was quite a long while ago now. That was quite an early episode of season one It was well. one of our earlier episodes, actually. Um, so if you want to go and listen to that one, uh, feel free. But our question this week is, what? sorry, what cryptid is your part of the world famous for? So let us know, obviously, where you are in the world you're and what Nessie, your cryptid is. Dragons, the Exmoor Beast, you've got yeah. what, Yeti, Sasquatch, Chupacabra. You mentioned the name of the dinosaur in Africa as well. Oh, yeah, Malike and Bembe. Yeah, yeah there are plenty. Yeah, yeah. Good let, us, let us know who, who comes from your region. Yeah. Who's your local monster? <laughs> <laughs> like the hairy hand of Dartmoor. <laughs> have you ever heard of that one? Eric? I have heard of that one, yeah. Oh, a mysterious ghost hand which appears in people's cars and drives you off the road. You can uh, send that in to us via our social media pages where that will be going up. That's um, Facebook, Twitter, and yes, I'm still calling it Twitter. I refuse to call it anything else, uh, as well as our Instagram page. But well, that leads us neatly uh, into me saying so that that leads us now neatly into the time where I get to talk about the many ways that you can help us out. 
The first uh, is is what these wonderful people are doing, which is joining our Patreon by supporting us on Patreon. You're helping us to make the podcast better and expand how we do things uh, and make things bigger and better. Uh, so a big thank you to the following people. Jennifer Greenhall. Connie P. Chelsea McKee. Jen Greenhall. And Fogtober. But money isn't everything. Uh, and you can help us out in a just as equally big way. And it's, in fact, one of the simplest ways by liking, subscribing, and leaving a review on whatever podcasting service you are listening to us on. Uh, and tell a friend or tell an enemy. Tell a plesiosaur as it pokes its long snake-like neck out of Loch Ness and uh, <laughs> <laughs> goes into the mist. <laughs> as it waves at a drunken Gareth. Uh, but both of these ways uh, really help us to grow the podcast. Uh, and a big thank you to everyone who's done either of those things. It has really helped the podcast to take off over the years. And we know that you want us to make the podcast better, and we obviously want to make the podcast better. So a big thank you to everyone there. And that pretty much brings us to the end of the uh, the show. Big thank you for coming along, Aaron. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for, for having me again. Thank you uh, to our listeners, and a big special thank you to uh, the patrons. Um, very cool. I will just add, we did... Um... We did get some emails in this week, but strangely, they're all kind of, you know, like more uh, personal emails, like um, asking about like like certain lines of work and stuff, but but in a more but not in a general way, kind of a personal way. So we'll answer you directly rather than on the podcast. And a big thank you to you at home for listening, and we will see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. Bye. So, uh, Gareth. Yes. Did you deep dive? I didn't, but I'm now going to go off and make myself a rusty girder. Find the iron <laughs> brew and the whiskey. <laughs>